If I was walking out to my mailbox and I looked down in the borrow pit and saw a dead cat there and pulled it out, and I was getting ready to put it in the trash, and a hunting nonprofit was driving by and they started asking me for the cat, I'd be like, no, you cannot have this dead cat. Go find your own dead cat. I wouldn't give a thin fucking dime to a hunting nonprofit that's engaged in R3. Let the freaking hunting industry fund the hunting nonprofits. That's their stakeholder group. If you really want to do something for access, there is one exception. And that's Montana Hunters for Access. I got two sheets of paper here right here right now with the names of 35 ranches on them that have said that they would accept a day or two of help around the place that we can give them out of appreciation for them allowing hunting access through the block management program. Or you can start a Hunters for Access chapter in your own state. And we'd help you with that. We got a website up and everything. You know, I'm learning that all kinds of states have little access programs. And you and you can start your own chapter and find ways to say thanks to the landowners that are enrolled in access programs in your own state. In the meantime, we need help with Montana Hunters for Access. So go to Montana hunteraccess.org today and make a financial contribution or better yet sign up come out here eastern montana this summer someday and give a day your day or two of your time out of appreciation because if i see your truck out here next fall and i find out that you were up at the lake fishing while we were fixing fence, I'm going to void my bladder on your door handle. Another thing I wanted to mention was, if you really want to put the influencers on notice, when you're buzzing around town, or at the trade show or the rendezvous, then go to huntquietly.org and get you a Hunt Quietly hat, t-shirt, or bumper sticker. Nothing says, shut the hell up and hunt like our merchandise. Or you can make your own. It doesn't really matter. We're not making a dime off of it. But just, you know, if you want to represent for Hunt Quietly, you know, and you want it to be, do you want to make it easy? You get the stuff from us or you can make it yourself. It's up to you. This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. All right. David Fonsenau here with Jacob Whitfield of North Carolina. Jacob, thank you for coming on. Yep, no problem. Happy to be here. So, um, I think I got your name from somebody, um, I can't remember who, I wish I'd written this down so I could thank them, but we put a call out, um, you know, with turkey season coming up, looking for some companies or individuals who 
would align probably with kind of hunt quietly values um, and the kind of companies we're looking for um, to who don't promote, you know, their products on Instagram via influencers and whatnot. Um, And they reached out and somebody gave us your name and the name of your uh, calling company, JSW Woodworks. Um, So here we are. Yes, sir. I've I've been making turkey calls for about, five six years now since about 20 2017 2018 but um i love making beautiful pieces of art that also people can use out in the woods sound good enough to kill a turkey but also look good enough to sit up on a mantle maybe during the mm-hmm. off that's and awesome not break the bank in the not break the bank in the process you know Would- I'm priced fairly fair in the market. What kind of what kind of price point are we talking about? I, I have I've no familiarity with the like kind of pot call and handmade call mm-hmm. market. I'm, I've just been a read call guy my whole life or my whole life my whole hunting career. So um, the lowest end is fifty dollars, but that's like okay. a wall. That's for a domestic species with a slate or a glass striking surface. That's like that's cherry, not bad. Walnut. Or, uh, Eastern red cedar, sycamore, oak, mm-hmm. but they can get upwards of $115, $120 for my most expensive exotic burls and epoxy hybrid. Like I've got some, some uh, Mali burl from Australia coming in right now that's also going to be an epoxy hybrid. That's going to be at least $105 a piece. Mm-hmm. And it's all said and done. Now, does a hundred and five dollar call sound any better than a fifty dollar call? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to ask that next. Do the different woods sound different, or is it pretty much all well, the same? They all the woods sound different. Um, it's a fine balance between the hardness of the wood and the density of the wood to how it'll sound. Mm-hmm. Like a very hard, dense wood. I've got to remove a lot of material and make the walls thin for it to sound good. A very light soft wood like eastern red cedar. If I remove too much wood, it'll sound poorly. So I've got to leave the walls thicker. It's a it's a fine balance to gotcha. Know what the wood is and what I can do to make it sound the best. That's really interesting. And so I when you're figuring it out, kind of how to get a certain type of wood to the right sound, are you like taking wood off and then like giving a little like, or you just have to guess. And at the very end, you find out. I don't know how a call sounds until it's 100% finished. Oh, that would drive me insane. Oh I mean, God. yeah, I mean, it took me, <laughs> it took me probably a year of making calls and finishing calls before I was able to figure out the internal dimensions and how the inside of a call looks to make mm-hmm. it sound good. So I don't measure anything. I have a few like reference pieces of glass and slate where I can set it in there and be like, yep, that's the right size. That's the right size. Gotcha. Everything else is, I don't measure anything that makes every piece I make unique. So nothing mm-hmm. ever, I never make the same call twice. Mm, that's super interesting. That's really cool. I love that. And I'm honestly like the price point. I mean, I would have thought, I don't know. My only reference point is I know a certain, um, we'll leave them nameless, t- uh, hunting media company 
made they did an episode of something that killed a turkey under a particular tree in some state or whatever so they cut that tree down to make like custom turkey calls out of it and i think they ran it was like a limited run and they ran 300 dollars per call and i just don't know who that is <laughs> that seems that like was one to me big hubbub and was it? I only just heard about this like I mean, recently. In in my community, in the little community of call makers that I talk with on Instagram, we were all pissed. Really? Man. Because what were they mad about? The price. $300. Yeah. Just because they thought it was exorbitant. Yes, because it's a nice call. Yes, it will kill turkeys. Yes, it's not a three hundred dollar call. It's yeah. one tree, it's two trees. It was a walnut and an Osage Arge. Mm-hmm. And they cut them down, had them milled up in the boards, kiln dried them, kiln dried them, mm-hmm. and then turned them the slabs into boards and ran them through a CNC machine, which is a computer controlled router that can sit there and cookie cutter out all these pieces, and they can pop out. I think it was sixteen at a time, so just attaching uh-huh. the boards to the machine, hitting go walking away coming back an hour later and there's 16 turkey calls and then you got to flip them over to do the the bottom side because they also had a design there they were nice calls they weren't 300 dollars. i at the high end they'd be 120 130 and that's mm-hmm. being very generous mm. they had a nice case they had a nice story they had a challenge coin buried in the bottom of the coin i mean they were nice. They weren't three hundred dollars nice. Mm, yeah, that extra hundred eighty dollars is just all brand goodwill, which is the brand you, of the story. Yeah, as I I work in uh, corporate finance slash accounting, so it's always interesting to see in like real world applications like this, where you know there's a market price for something like a call like that, where you guys all have an idea in your head of like, yeah, this would be a fair price for that call. And then there's people who can just come in that market with whatever special sauce they have from like the loyalty of their customers or whatever, and they can just come in like double. And when you you don't see that in real um, world economic situations as much. I mean, there's stuff you know like smart water or whatever, where it's like it's water. Like, why am I paying five dollars for a bottle instead of one ninety nine? But people do it. Um, the honey community do. just does it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they do with smart water, but it it tastes better than Deer Park or what's the, the what's the other main one? Like whatever Nestle made. Dasani. Yeah. Nestle yeah, Dasani. Nestle might own smart water. I don't know, but Yeah. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, they could. <laughs> but yeah, I was I always find that that super interesting. What's this um this community of call makers? I mean, what is this? Because you know we're look we're looking at the hunting industry, right? We're trying to find we're essentially trying to find small businesses, people who are just not these big conglomerates or big companies that take investments or whatever. You know, we've talked to a couple people now, and these are all people who make hunting products on the side, um, for the most part. You know, some bow makers and um a bino harness maker we talked to tnk hunting he does this full time but you know they're few and far between it's hard to really start this kind of business with just elbow grease you know you need 
some marketing and and stuff like that to get yourself out there a lot of times what's the community like that you guys you talk to and you know what's your relationship with the more commercial mm -hmm. industry with the commercial industry there's no yeah. relationship with bigger commercial industries like woodhaven they're too big to mm -hmm. communicate with peons like like us really woodhaven is the sponsor for, uh, for people like the hunting public yeah um, but for the small guys like myself i mean we talk pretty constantly i probably talk with a dozen different guys regularly and two dozen people off and on mm -hmm. just hey what's your process for this what's your finishing process where did you get this wood where did uh where are you getting your slates from because slate prices have gone up just like everything else so everyone's trying to find a new source of slate that isn't four dollars a piece because it used to be a dollar eighty a piece ouch so when you when you're going in and you're buying 250 slates at a time you're now paying five hundred dollars instead of you're now paying close to eight hundred nine hundred dollars instead of a few hundred like i was when i got started mm -hmm. Very interesting. And so when you say there's no relationship with like a Woodhaven or anything at all, I mean, is it like you guys just don't even recognize each other? Has there been any kind of like interaction or stuff like that? Not with me. I mean, I've tried reaching out a couple times and mm -hmm. I just get like a like on the Instagram DM or something along those lines. Just no desire for in course course i'm sure their dms are blown up daily with i'm sure yeah everybody trying to talk to them so i'm not gonna fault them for that i'm sure i'm very sympathetic to that they've now. got I, we, one or two people whose sole job is social media relations yes yeah, yeah. i'm like very sympathetic to that now we only have three thousand followers but even like with one saucy post or something like that the number of dms i get is just unbelievable like i don't sometimes i wonder how i manage to like get through a full day and like run that instagram and res i respond to everyone um which is not going to last forever but right um you know and some people come on the war path <laughs> our dms too trying to have like philosophical you know just epilogue with me i'm like man i can only do so much if this is what the podcast is for like go listen to that <laughs> and you've got 20 people that want to have a full philosophical conversation yeah 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 and there are oh, definitely people the emotional who, and mental energy that that would take you have no idea nah. you have no idea i i i did not i very much underestimated like what a workload this would running an instagram like this would be um especially i think just because of like it's not what's not like a, a a comedy account where you can just post stuff and people <laughs> laugh and you're kind of done like in order for us to like be successful in the social media endeavor like there has to be some communication like trying to win hearts and minds you need to clarify things you know we don't have i don't know if you're familiar with kind of like the history of hunt quietly but when matt started it we did not get off to the best foot um first foot when he was on the mediator episode um a couple of years ago he did like a seven on one like you know seven mediator guys versus him on the podcast of talking about hunt quietly and that was just a train wreck and that was people's main perception of us um when we started all this so we spent you know i don't even know how many months fighting off that perception and then 
you were trying to build our platform, which I think you've read on the website. We're, we're kind of workshopping that right now um, to expand a couple things, maybe dial a couple things back based off the feedback we've gotten. Um, but yeah, it's uh, people thought people think like the craziest things about what hung quietly is about. And it's clearly just like they've never been on the website, you know, but the positive side is a couple comments back and forth. A lot of people have like a little bit of a, you know, they're willing to change their mind or at least like say like, Oh, okay. Like I misunderstood you, which is nice, but yeah, it's wild. I'm currently working through your backlog of podcasts and I'm just trying to get my head fully around all of your touchstones with Hunt Quietly. And sure. I can agree um, with a vast majority of them. What's your what's your kind of perception of what Hunt Quietly is about right now? I'd be curious to hear kind of like what you've gathered. That the hunting industry and their use of social media personalities it's what's is what is causing the degradation of a vast majority of our game species and publicly accessible hunting lands. That's pretty one. What was the other one? That we don't need more hunters, we need fewer quality hunters. We don't yeah. need a thousand people. We need 250 that care about the conservation of an ecosystem as a whole, rather than a thousand jabronis driving into the woods with their trucks and tearing up all the roads or leaving their garbage. Personally, I hunt in the Croatan National Forest in the eastern part of North Carolina, and I can see the kind of stuff that the general public can and will do because it's also right in between two military bases. So you've got uh, military guys on the weekends, young men uh, really jacked up on testosterone and haven't chat in a week due to the meals that they eat going out there and tearing up roads or shooting stuff or this and that. Mm -hmm. So I can see I mean, that's just the general public in the hunting lands, but I've also, I've had two birds shot out from under me in the Croatan from people either coming in behind me, or maybe they came in from another direction and didn't even know I was there, but, you know, working a bird and then getting wow. a shotgun in that direction. is like, well, I'm not hunting him anymore. <laughs> that's wild. Yeah. I, I'm When I first came on a podcast with Matt, I told him about my turkey hunting experience in Virginia which was not very positive. I still, I've saw for background, I've been hunting for about five or six years, picked it up myself in my like early twenties. I just turned 30 this past year. Um, and, uh, I've gotten Turkey and waterfowl has been like my thing. Have I have yet to harvest a Turkey. Um, but I have done the dance many a time. And in Virginia, usually I was one of four or five guys doing the dance on that bird on WMA land. And I mean, I can't tell you the number of times bird got shot, you know, probably like 300 yards from me or something. And then I go to walk out 
and there's four guys behind me with all their shotguns pointed like right where I was standing with their decoy sat out or whatever. And they're, you know, a couple hundred yards back, maybe like there's, there's a, some, they weren't, you know, 50 yards behind me. I wasn't in range by any means, but you know, nothing like what turning a corner and you see a decoy out there and, you know, shit yourself for a split second. And you realize you're just walking up on a hunter. Yeah. Yeah. If you've so, got a little piece of white or blue or red sticking out the front of you and you get someone who's trigger happy, half asleep, and they see something red sitting about here, that could get very bad very quickly. Yeah. I wore, I made sure to bring in a blaze orange vest with me after my very first turkey hunting experience in Virginia. And if I like was going to walk out or even walk to a new spot, I put them on. Um, if you're moving in public lands with turkeys, for those who don't know, turkeys have impeccable eyesight. When you're turkey hunting, you wear completely 100% camo while you're hunting. No orange. They'll see it from two miles away and you'll never see that bird. Yeah. If you're sitting still, fully camoed. If you're mm-hmm. moving, at least have a piece of camouflage on your back. So that if you're trying to walk towards a turkey, you stand some semblance of a chance of them not seeing you. Yep. And if you're just yeah. walking out, you're maybe you're done for the day. Uh, blaze orange on both sides so someone can see you from the front and the back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. I think it's it's a must, um, especially in the east. I'm very. I, I moved to uh, Colorado this past year for a new job. So I'm very curious to see what it's like out here. I don't think it'll be as packed in. Um, it's a little more space, but uh, but we'll see. A, were you in the eastern part of the western part of Virginia? Eastern. I was in uh, Virginia Beach. Uh, okay, was the last so place you're I like me. You go from flatlands, sea level, and now you're sitting at, I don't know what your altitude is, 2,500, 3,000 feet. And in Colorado, I'm yeah. mile high. Mile high, yeah. I'm sure it was a big difference with your first winter and your first summer. How long did you live in? Such a big difference. Yeah. I moved um, on Halloween of this past year. So right right in the middle of my season. You had your winter experience. I'm sure that that was eye-opening. I mean, I've never duck hunted sub-zero so many days in my life. I mean, I have like 800 grain boots and five millimeter neoprene waders and that wasn't even close to warm enough most of the days um, you don't even I, have to break out your winter jacket on the east coast most type, most years you might break it out once or twice oh i broke the only time i ever broke out my heaviest jacket duck hunting on the east coast was um like maybe two or three days a year getting on the boat it would be just windy and cold enough that i really wanted that thick jacket but other than that i was wearing like two layers of like a light whatever like the you know bass pro special cheap camo jacket was i had um i can't remember what it's called um and and that would be that you know if i wore a beanie it was it was cold out in virginia and out here i mean it's a constant struggle we always say um be bold start cold because we have to drag our sleds to the river to go duck hunt you know sometimes a few miles so you come in all insulated, you're going to be sweating like crazy. And, uh, and I definitely made that mistake a few times and ended up soaked in my waders sitting there for first light to come around. And then that chill hits in and all that heat you worked up hiking out fades out and 
30 minutes into the hunt, you know, you, you feel like you just took a dunk, dunk in the river. Yeah. Layering is very important in knowing how to manage your layers as you're doing different activities. Yeah. So turkey definitely. call making is my side job. My main mm-hmm. job is I'm a forester out here. So I'm every day I'm working out in the woods during the winter, during the summer. So I'm definitely familiar with layering in the winter. Yeah. In the early morning, I've got on two layers. By the end of the day, I might be just down to a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Our summer days can get at the 60s. I mean, it's February, well, it's March now, but in February, it was 80 degrees. Our spring started two months early. Wow. Yeah. Pine pollen already flying out here. Mm-hmm. Sure, you know, pine pollen typically doesn't start flying until late March, early April. Yep. Yeah. 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 You guys had that big warm up when we got that cold spell over here. Oh, yeah. I think at the same time. Yeah. It was, it was a, a weird line where the, the jet stream was half the bottom third of the country was hot. The rest of it was frozen. Yeah. Storms and ice storms and. It was yeah, in Los Angeles or something. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. That was the part of that jet stream that put all that snow. Yeah, yeah. This we'll see. This weather has been has been wild. Everyone says here has been Colorado has been colder than it's ever been, and our snowpack is at like I think it's supposed to be approaching like record levels. Which with the drought out here would be great. I mean, if you know, you still need rain in the summer, but the snowpack can fill the reservoirs a little bit. You know, some of those reservoirs are down ten feet, so that could be a good thing for us in the long run. We'll see. I'd love to circle back though to your. Well, we'll circle back to the hunt quietly views in a second. I kind of I want to talk about like your career a little bit, the forester side, because I'm very interested. Right. I, I feel like you must you must get a great exposure to the private land scene in your area right because i'm sure you do like prescribed burns and like some harvesting work and planning work for a lot of these guys who have hunting properties or hunt clubs or properties that they do all the combined in virginia it was always like they would you know harvest certain sections and then hunt the rest and kind of like rotate throughout like a big property and that's how the property paid for itself almost yeah the hunt club leases definitely knock out a big chunk of the property taxes most of the properties i manage are timos which are timber investment management organizations and Mm -hmm. those are organizations that take people's money and put it in timberlands as an investment most of it's uh, retirement and pension funds for northeastern states public servants like teachers or interesting A lot of it's teacher pension funds, which is mm-hmm. funny. You've got Northeastern teachers whose pension is on Southeast Timber. They retire and move to the Southeast sea logging. Why are you logging? You know, $10,000 <laughs> pension fund. Yeah. But yes, all of our acres are already leased to hunt clubs, and they pay like 50 cents an acre, I think. About yeah, fifty to sixty cents an acre. Oh, uh, that's re- really good price. Mm-hmm. But when it's across, you know, that can't be that cheap. I don't know. It's all dealt with in Charlotte. I'm with American Forest Management. I'm just a small peon field guy. <laughs> yeah, I count trees and I paint property lines. <laughs> 
they're all all of that property is managed by my boss who he works out of an office in Fayetteville. So whenever he a timber sale comes up for one of these properties on the eastern part of the state, it's my responsibility to take that timber sale from start. I cruise the property. I figure out what the inventory of the trees is there. I paint, I paint the property lines and the sale lines to make sure the loggers don't cut where they're not supposed to cut. And then my boss puts it up for bid. A dozen timber buyers put in prices for it. The highest buyer, highest bidder, or maybe the second highest bidder will get it in some cases. And then they'll start cutting and I'll make sure that the loggers are respecting all parts of their contract, you know, making sure they're not doing any bad rutting, making sure they're not tearing up our roads. If they do tear up the roads, we figure out a way to fix it. And a lot of times in our contract, it says the roads must be returned to as good as or better conditions when they started. And mm-hmm. they did. Once they're finished logging, they'll pick up their wooden road mats and take a road grader. We've got a nice, pretty road <laughs> left after the logging job. Mm-hmm. And then once all the trees are cut, then we start the process over. But that's what we're in the middle of right now. We're planting 3,000 acres on the eastern part of the state mm-hmm. this winter. We just started planting in the end of February. And typically, you want to plant in like mid to late January. You want mm-hmm. to plant pine trees when it's cold, when it's humid, and not very windy. We started planting. It was 80 degrees, 30% humidity, and windy as all get out. Mm-hmm. I'll be very interested to see how well these trees survive being planted in unfavorable conditions. Gotcha. We did so planting last year in these similar conditions, and the survival was okay to mediocre. If we plant four hundred, if we plant five hundred trees per acre, and we see eighty percent survival, that's okay. Mm-hmm. If there's less than two hundred and fifty trees, i.e., half of them die, that's a problem, and we'll come back in in the next winter, and the tree planters will. Interplant, which means gotcha. they'll take more pine seedlings, walk down the same line, and when there's a dead tree, they'll put it in the live tree. Gotcha. Very interesting. So these uh, timber investment management, Timos, you call them, right? Timber, they timber. own the land? Correct. We don't own the land. We just manage it, manage it for them. So they are they, they must be a pretty big landowner in your area then for you to be covering this much acreage. Uh, all throughout the southeast, they're, yeah. they're the reason. This is the biggest planting year that we've ever had, three thousand acres, and that is because in 2020, I don't know if you remember, the Gulf Coast had about six hurricanes hit the same stretch mm-hmm. within like two months, yep. and that laid down like ten tens of thousands of acres of this client's timber. Mm. So that. One, it messed up their revenue flow, and two, it scared them about their timberlands that are close to coasts that are mm-hmm. have hurricanes hit regularly. Eastern North Carolina, we get we get hurricanes regularly, regularly, 
but uh, we've been lucky the past couple of years to not have any big bad ones. Mm -hmm. So we had to do a lot of harvesting on, in our area to cover the income that the the uh, the client needed to ensure that their investors, the retirement funds, are remain properly funded. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how many acres they own. They own a lot. Yeah, yeah. I always there's. I feel like land ownership in the East is like there's a misconception. I mean, there's definitely some true like people have some ideas about it that are definitely true, but I think there's some missing points there. Cause some of the, the feedback we get a lot is that hunk quietly is very Western focus, which is, I think fair to say that like a lot of what we're talking about is more Western focused, but I think a lot of it could be applied in the East. And one of the big things we hear about a lot is that, Oh, you know, in the East and the Southeast, like leasing is essential. Like there's too many landowners. You could never have a public access program because it would just be like little pieces everywhere. But from my own experience scouting Onyx in Virginia, North Carolina, I know for sure that the nature conservancy owns a ton of land in Virginia, especially. Um, and some of it, they do lease to hunt clubs. I, I suspect I haven't confirmed that with them, but I've seen properties like I've been like, like in front of the property, seen the posted sign that says so-and-so hunt club. And then on, on X, it says owned by the nature conservancy. So I suspect they do do some leasing. They do have one or two draw hunts in Virginia, but I've also seen, you know, timber companies like you've like the ones you're working with that own thousands and thousands of acres. And they lease privately right now in, in large part because there's no other option. And it's probably financially more viable as compared to like Virginia has a walk-in access program. It's called PALS, I think. I think there's one property in the whole state. It's a, I mean, it's a joke. Um, but when I see big landowners like that, I think, well, that's like a golden opportunity. Like that could be if in an ideal situation, if there's a public program, you could create like large swaths of public land with those partnerships. But what do you think? I mean, would that be in any realm of possibility you think to happen in a place like North Carolina, or you think it's just the culture it's ingrained, you know, what is, what do you think that that possibility looks like? The culture is very ingrained and it all comes down to money. Is the mm -hmm. state able to put up enough money to create large blocks of privately owned, publicly accessible timberlands. Cause like mm -hmm. a lot of our properties also butt up to other large landowners like Warehouser or the Hoffman Forest, which is now, it was owned by NC State University, mm -hmm. still is owned by them, but managed by a uh, RMS forestry, another consultant forestry outfit, and it's all privately leased. All and Apparently, all of this are managed for timber and like for profit, right? Like to max. All of they're trying to make it, money. Yeah, when you see a bunch of pine trees planted in a row, it looks yeah. like a forest. It's actually a farm, really. You're yeah. growing. You're growing pine trees as a crop. Mm -hmm. It just it look it looks like a forest because they're trees. All of it's managed to create 
pine saw timber for revenue. Now that's not mm-hmm. all of the work I do. It's just that's where the money is, so it's most of the work I do. Right. If I had a landowner with fifty acres that was managed poorly back in the nineteen fifties. And now it's a hodgepodge of different things. And they say, I want better hunting habitat. I can say, okay, we can do X, Y, and Z to get you better hunting habitat. Mm-hmm. Most of the time that includes cutting out three quarters of the trees and leaving desirable species like your oaks or your hickories or your dogwoods and in- implementing a prescription burn. So when you take out a lot of the trees, you get a lot of sunlight to the forest floor. You get a lot mm-hmm. of sunlight to the forest floor. That's my cat. <laughs> when you get a lot of sunlight to the forest floor, you get a lot of herbaceous plants and grasses and things mm-hmm. that deer and turkey or quail all need or want. So mm-hmm. there are definitely they're called it's called silviculture. There are definitely tools in our silviculture toolbox. That can make better hunting habitat for the smaller landowner in the southeast. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish I had the report, but we were given a report in school saying that most of the private landowners in the southeast, they want their property for hunting. They don't want it mm-hmm. for production. They don't want it for revenue. They want a good place that they can go shoot a couple deer, turkey, and bear. Or as our larger landowners, like our main client, their timber production is the primary objective. Mm-hmm. Doing timber production sustainably. Secondary is maintaining clean waterways. So if there's like a good ditch or a creek mm-hmm. or a swamp on the property, it's well protected so that the loggers don't mess any of that up. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is for it looks good and for liability reasons. Once you start trying to cut in a swamp, you've got a whole list of other things like oil control and sediment control that you've got to start dealing with. It's a lot more expensive. It's a lot less lucrative. So it's wiser to just keep wetlands wet, creeks. Mm -hmm. You have to have an SMZ around the streamside management zones. That's 50 feet where high impact logging equipment can't go. So that's mm-hmm. like a, a cutting machine with tires on it. If they mm-hmm. drive somewhere where it's wet, they're going to create deep ruts. They can still cut in there, but with a track cutter. So it's a big machine with like tank treads on them with a cutter head. They can go in and remove pine trees, but leave the oaks or the mm-hmm. hardwood species and selectively cut out the pine trees. And that's good for us. Mm-hmm. When they when it's a mixed pine hardwood stream bottom and the loggers, they cut the pine plantation that's right next to it. And they also remove the pine trees from this SMZ. That's helpful to us because now we don't have pine trees that are throwing seed into our pine plantation where we're going to be planting improved genetic pine trees. Mm-hmm. So it's what grows out what grows in the plantation is what we want and not uh, random genetics from the pine trees that are Mm. favoring. Sometimes that can help. Like if we have poor survival 
on the trees that we plant, sometimes it's nice to have neighboring trees throwing in seeds. So maybe only 300 of our planted trees survived, but we have an additional 150, 200 natural pines. We've got a fully stocked stand. It can grow. Oh, very interesting. But when the when the loggers are allowed to take a track cutter into an SMZ, we've got to watch them very carefully because, like, if a pine tree is on the stream bank, they cannot cut it. If the tree, mm-hmm. the canopy overtops the stream, or the roots stabilize the stream side, like the mm-hmm. banks of it, they can't touch it. And that's good. Mm-hmm. They don't want the water to warm up from sunlight, mm-hmm. and they don't want to help erosion. Right. That makes sense. So when you say improved genetic, I know in Virginia they talked about trying to restore like loblolly pine forests. Is this uh, um, loblolly and what was the other kind of longleaf? Um, yeah, longleaf. All right. Is this a variety of loblolly and longleaf? And when you guys, because when you plant it, does it have like a similar, like are we seeing a similar? habitat improvement from restoring like if you take some old like some lot that's just overgrown with whatever burn it and plant it with loblolly pine are we better off from an environmental standpoint you think than if that lot was just you know briars and whatever else it depends on what was cut how old it was and what's left if you take a old mature mixed vegetation forest that's 120 years old cut it down and replace it with loblolly that's not as good as just letting it stay or doing a stand improvement cut in which you can go mm-hmm. and selectively remove some of the trees gotcha. loblolly okay so how deep do you want to get so in the south don't go too deep we got to get back to hunt quietly eventually but this is very interesting stuff (laughs) in the the southeast there used to be it was all either prairie or longleaf savanna the native Mm -hmm. americans regularly burned the southeast Mm -hmm. um and now all of the southeast is either development farmland or closed canopy forest you very rarely have open canopy forests that mm-hmm. works historically here. When you make a loblolly plantation, it's going to be a closed canopy forest. Okay. You may be able to make it an open canopy in 60 years. Once the planted trees come up, you come in and you cut half of them in a first thinning. You mm-hmm. let them grow another 15 years. You come back in and now you have big, tall, mature trees. You can cut out another half and now you're left with an open canopy forest that you can implement the prescription burn regime every three years and that will become a very healthy productive for game species Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very interesting yeah that's all virginia was doing that on a couple wmas that i hunted um so they'd be burnt they were burning it in the spring which and they were burnt i would scout turkeys in certain spots and then be burned the next week before the season started which was always a pain um, but yeah, they were, it, it was, I think it was mostly a quail habitat initiative where they were those, the, the grasslands you talked about with like big, like open, uh, canopy pines and, um, and a lot of grass underneath for sure. Yeah. Yep. Turkeys love a burn. You, mm-hmm. they'll run a fire through 
and the ground will still be smoking and you'll see turkeys going through scratching through the charred layer down with the dirt really look for seeds yeah a turkey loves the bird like right now i've got a email set up from the Croatan national forest so i can see notifications for when and where they burn so now i know where they burned this past month so come mm-hmm. turkey season i know where to start looking the problem is uh, a lot of people get these emails so a lot of people know where they burn and there's mm-hmm. going to be turkey habitat there mm-hmm. to start trying but that's the fun part is trying to find the birds that no one else has found yet yep definitely yeah so you're hunting public forests, but i imagine with your job you could probably get on some places pretty easily couldn't you what what's making what's driving you to the public insurance all of our hunt clubs have insurance policies to cover you know accidents and stuff Mm -hmm. and if i were to go hunt there without their permission i'd be trespassing well yeah yeah. i'd be hunting property that i'm not allowed to hunt i'm I'm assuming i'm 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 uh saying more that like with those connections working on all these properties that you could like get on a place legally or get permission or get an invitation I would have thought right. you'd be like and, and the the guy to go to for private access. Well, I'm also the insurance policies don't allow guests. Uh, so I can't be okay. a guest on these hunt club leases. Mm-hmm. Now, if there were some private landowners that I'm working with, I could approach them as someone that they knew and have worked with and mm-hmm. but I've been so busy working with these large organizations that I haven't had much opportunity to build up my personal private landowner base to manage, which is unfortunate, but I've sent, uh, I've got a, I have a land glide on my phone, similar to Onyx. It's a GIS. So when I'm driving Mm -hmm. down the road and I see a good tract of timber, I'll pull up the property. I'll see the landowner, take a screenshot of it. And then once every month, I'll go through my screenshots and send them letters asking, do you have a forester on hand to help you manage your property how you want? Mm-hmm. Maybe this landowner is looking for some revenue. Maybe this landowner has a hundred acres and they want better hunting habitat. That's all things mm-hmm. that would tell me and I could facilitate that process. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. But so you, you don't have joining a, a, a club or something like that. Is that on your back? Yeah, it's too expensive. All the hunt clubs is like a thousand dollars plus to join, and that's just out really financial range. Especially, I don't really deer hunt. All I do is really turkey hunt, so it's Mm -hmm. not worth it for me to pay a thousand dollars to kill two birds. Yeah, that's that sounds like on the expensive side. From in Virginia, so my parents lived in the north northern Virginia area outside DC, and then moved to a place on the bay, like much more in the countryside. And my dad did a bunch of work on the house and every contractor was a member of a deer club. And my dad being the chatty guy he is, would tell like everybody on oh, my son hunts, blah, blah, blah. So I got to like talk to a few guys. And when I was in Virginia, I thought about joining a club. Um, and they ranged like 600 to 800, I think typically for the non-dog clubs um so well they always call them still hunting but depending on who you ask still hunting doesn't necessarily mean standing still um or being in a tree stand but um um 
but yeah, thousands for a for a not for not a dog club, right? For like a tree stand hunting club. I think some of them might have dogs. Yeah, because the dog the dog thing I get is expensive. Yeah, but I mean, I see so many deer and turkey on properties that I manage that I can't hunt. I'll have all my turkey hunting equipment in the truck yeah. because I'll go I'll go sit on some public land after I get my work finished for the day. I was like, hmm, is it worth my job to go try to kill that turkey? No, I better not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's got to be tough. So is and is that is this a common? theme amongst the people you, like you know who hunt i mean are there people who are priced out of these hunt clubs who are doing the same thing you're doing a lot of the times or do most people make the hunt club thing work kind of what's the what's the yeah, community look I mean, like there all of the hunt clubs i've talked to they're all great guys but they're all belly aching about how expensive their lease has gotten Mm-hmm. And for some reason or another, we've gone up on the lease prices. I don't know. I, I can't speak to that. But mm-hmm. they're all good guys and they help maintain the property. They maintain the roads and they maintain four-wheeler paths that I can use to walk in and out and around stands. Um, my boss leases uh, some of the property from the company uh, a bit west of here. And he's given me permission to turkey hunt it, but I've turkey hunted it a handful of times and I've never seen nor heard any sign of any bird out there. Mm. In my all in all the work I've done on that property and also hunting it, I haven't seen any sign of him. So eh. it's a it's a quick, easy hunt, like on a weekend, because it's only 30 minutes away compared mm-hmm. to an hour and a half to my closest publicly public land mm-hmm. yeah some days it's just i'll go i'll go woodwork instead i'll go <laughs> yeah. make turkey calls instead of hunting turkeys yeah that makes sense um and so do you are the people you hunt with on the like so you said your boss has a lease a few people complaining about prices of lease going up but it seems like sounds like people are kind of sticking with the culture like the still Mostly yeah. leasing, mostly clubs, and they may bellyache about it or whatever, but they're, you know, it seems to get the job done for them. Yeah, it, it's enough. It's good enough for them, which if in North Carolina were to implement a program to open up public hunting access to private, it would have to be very financially incentive, in, incentivizing the mm-hmm. landowner to mm-hmm. to go into the program, but with the right financial recipe, you think it like these landowners are essentially because they're looking at each property as like an ROI, right? They bought it for this amount, they get this x amount of timber per year. Property tax costs them y, management costs them z, and like that's their equation, right? So if, if the yeah. government can get in there and say, well, here's your fee from the licenses that we sold for this public access program here's a break on the tax or whatever like if that adds up you'd think they'd be like whatever sure like we'll do whatever makes the most dollar sense yeah it's all future cash flow analysis how much is this investment worth right. in 30 years now mm-hmm. 
So they've got the yearly income from the hunt lease. They've got the yearly cost of property taxes and the yearly cost right. of management. So it's all in a big Excel sheet somewhere where they can plug in, plug and play different prices and see yeah. what's the most sense for their investors, really. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I was in Timber, years. I'd be the guy with that spreadsheet. That's my job pretty much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you, so you know future future cash flow, present use value, that sort of stuff. And the, Net yeah. present value and all yeah. that good stuff. Yep. I, I made an A in forest economics in college, but it <laughs> help me if I had to do it now. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's so interesting. How do you think hunter behavior would play into that equation? Do these are these timber management companies since they're not ranchers they're not on the property all the time you think they're going to have a higher tolerance like for the kinds of issues that would force them out of a program if that were if there were to be one the main thing would be how well do the hunters treat the roads mm-hmm. road construction and road maintenance is mm-hmm. a big cash draw on the on the landowner mm-hmm. so if you allow the public in there and someone goes in there with big mud tires and just floors it and put mud on their truck because they've got they're going to a, a country concert this weekend <laughs> and tears the road up, there's no one that we can hold liable because mm. we probably did it. Yeah. At least with the hunt club, we've got a list of names of people that it could have been. Mm. That would be another good point for the state then if they did road maintenance, if they took like like mm-hmm. the the cost responsibility of the roads, that'd probably be a big factor in that equation for these companies. Yeah, I actually didn't think of that. That the uh, the state could assist in, in road maintenance. Mm-hmm. That's a good point that I had not previously thought of. But yeah, that that would be the main thing. And mm-hmm. as long as the people coming in don't start fires like campfires, no burning. Mm-hmm. Don't trash the place. It's it's fine. A lot of our properties are um, forestry always gets the worst. They get the, the the land that's not good enough for farming. So a lot of times it's <laughs> deep, deep organic soil. So if you've got a fire, it can get in the soil and burn mm-hmm. for three months and create a giant hole in the ground where all the organics burned out. Fires mm. are definitely, we've got the watch. And some of the properties, they, if fire would be good, but a lot of the properties, fires would just ruin them. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Because they, yeah. weren't, they weren't pine forests historically. They're bays. They're, they're uh, where sand dunes were, in between the sand dunes, there's a divot. And mm-hmm. something stopped the water from flowing out of that divot, and it filled in with organic matter and soil over the past eon. And mm-hmm. now it's deep organic soil. And some of it's good enough to grow pine trees. Some of it just stays as bays, which are really thick, nasty, good environment for bears and uh, rabbits. Because mm. it's so thick and nasty, and nothing. Nothing really grows in there except bay bushes and briars. Gotcha. Very interesting. Man, that's see, I, I this so I love this conversation because I've never 
put together these pieces on like, you know, everyone says public access on private in the East is like not feasible, but as via like this, I mean, who knows what the dollars and cents for the government would look like. Obviously that's, that would be the, and a state agency's got to make money off of what they bring in. So they'd have to sell a license or whatever to, to be able to pay for that property. But it sounds like the economic framework is potentially there and that the, you know, functionally from an ecological perspective, there's some give and take there too that would benefit wildlife and hunters between these groups and what maybe a state agency might be interested in. So right. if they, if the, uh, the state were to get like three or four big landowners that all neighbor each other and put it as a WMA, mm-hmm. and then it'd be like a $2 add on to when you buy your hunt license online, say, I want mm-hmm. to hunt this WMA because mm-hmm. I live close to it, then that all that money could go back to the landowner on top of whatever percentage, small percentage of all of the license sales in the state could go to that, that landowner. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, to fu- like. or to fund the road work or like whatever whatever it was that whatever that equation worked out to be with those people yeah that's super interesting um do you guys have uh the like daily lease type companies in north carolina in your part of north carolina too i'm in virginia it was called uh oh god virginia outdoors unlimited or something like that it was one of these companies where you could like look online, they have like Airbnbs for hunting properties all over. You pay like twenty bucks to get on a twenty acre property for a day or something. Is that present around you guys that you know of? I don't know. If it is, if it is present, I've not seen it. Uh I really do like the sound of that because twenty dollars to hunt a day isn't a whole lot compared to paying a thousand dollars for a year. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough it's those are very interesting. Um, I've definitely had some interesting arguments with people about those. In certain places like Montana, where you already have a public access program on private land, I look at a program like that and I say, uh, like, I see a lot of problems there with a for-profit group that would eventually end up in my, if, if they're following like a logical economical trajectory to try to maximize the profits of their business, they're going to end up lobbying against the public access program, right? Because that's going to be their biggest competitor. They're the only company in the market. And the only other person leasing land from individuals is either outfitters or the government, essentially. And then maybe some individuals you're competing with, but the government's going to be the big ones with almost 7 million acres. But in the East, where you don't have those programs and you essentially just want to make it so people can get boots on the ground somewhere, you know, and you also want to create economic incentives to keep people from developing those properties so that they can never be hunted again with, you know, a cul-de-sac or whatever. $20 a day maybe doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world to like make public hunting access public. I say, you know, available to the people, but it's not really public. It's still private, but it's just, it's accessible. It's publicly accessible because they're not, the general public is not priced out. Right. And also I had the thought of making it like Uber, 
where the hunter who leases it can give the property a four or five star review on how good the hunting was, but also the landowner can give the hunter a one or two star review if they tore up the road mm-hmm. or broke the rules that yep. they had set forth with, within this program. So that mm-hmm. if that uh, all of the other landowners within this base could see that hunting, you're like, eh, do I really want to take this guy's twenty dollars to let him hunt my property? Maybe not. Right. That that's a very interesting company idea. Yeah. Yeah, they exist. And I know for sure that they the company in Virginia, whose name I'm blanking on right now, have pushed into North Carolina a ways. I can't remember how far. I want to say maybe like forty-five minutes from the border. Um, so not terribly deep in North Carolina, but they had some places for sure. Um and you know i don't know how good they were how productive they were i definitely saw some that were you know they like on the first day that they opened or whatever it was booked for the whole season so it must have been a good property people knew um but then others just sit there all the time and so you know i'm sure it's pretty hit and miss just like public land or anything else can be but it's it's an interesting idea it's definitely not the route i would like to see the east go in terms of opening up access to more individuals, just because it is such a pay to play model. Um, and as it gains popularity, I definitely see the risk of if it were to gain popularity, but not necessarily add as much supply, they're just going to hike their prices up eventually. So there's, there's just, I see a lot of potential. I see a lot of benefits especially for the east where land use is more competitive you know a a hunting property could very well be a a suburban development the next year um which i would rather it be a pay-to-play hunting property than it be a suburban development but you know yeah there's there are uh, subdivision encroachments well not encroachment that implies being illegal there's a lot Mm -hmm. of subdivisions creeping around my in the croatan national forest like mm-hmm. I got to drive by one that wasn't there eight years ago to get mm. into one of my favorite longleaf spots. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I talked to a guy who was a big woodcock hunter in Virginia and the, I worked for uh, a defense contractor at a college and the property I worked at used to be his favorite woodcock hunting spot before they developed it in like the eighties to this defense cr- contractor's office. Um, so Things like that always, you know, they make you wonder how how valuable that new Taco Bell on the corner or whatever really is when you think about who might have been hunting there, what might have been going on from that perspective. Oh, yeah, that stuff. That stuff has no value when they're looking at a spreadsheet. The yeah. uh, the guys whose grand granddad took them out there hunting for the first time when they were five years old and mm-hmm. the people that own the property and develop the property that's that that doesn't have a dollar value so it has no value whereas mm-hmm. to the people who grew up hunting there it means the world yeah 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 it's all a matter of perspective yeah definitely all right well i'd love to, let's love to circle back here because we got way off like the hunt quietly view side of things yeah, yeah. um but that was an awesome wormhole we went through so yeah, I'd love to hear kind of a little bit about just like what you 
we talked a little bit about what you've interpreted from what you've read, which you're pretty much spot on. You know, our whole viewpoint is that we're trying to decommercialize the hunting model in some respect. And we think the big avenues via which hunting's become commercialized has been social media, TV, and YouTube. Um, that those are the biggest kind of avenues through which we've commodified hunting in some way. Um, and, you know, so we're trying to steer everything away from that commercial pay to play model through, you know, just getting off Instagram, getting away from influencers. Um, there's also then the R3 element we can talk about where, where, you know, question the motivations behind, uh, companies and nonprofits pushing R3. Um, and then, and then obviously what we've talked about already a little bit is there's the leasing side where we want people in states with public access programs to not lease. And then in places where their leasing is essential, we say, just share your lease liberally. Yeah. Sharing a lease liberally sounds great, but then it's the insurance problem. The mm-hmm. hunt clubs pay the insurance. The insurance doesn't allow guests. That mixes it. And insurances, they 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 don't want to pay for an accident on the property from a from from a publicly accessed. Mm-hmm. So I, that would be a really big can of worms, but it would be a step in the right direction. That I don't know if it can happen. And and when I first when I first got the the DM asking if I'd want to talk on the podcast and listening to some of the episodes, I started to think, am I an influencer? I'm I'm making a product and I'm selling it to this industry. I'm posting gripping grins from customers of mine who purchase a turkey call and they kill a bird with it. Mm -hmm. So I don't actually know if I am or not. If I am, am I doing damage? And the conclusion I came to was, no, I'm a craftsman who's making a product that a hunt that I'm not saying my turkey calls are the best in the game. Any turkey call maker who says that is lying. <laughs> my, my, how many birds have been killed with a $15 Primo's call from Walmart? Yeah. It was plastic injection molded from China. Mm-hmm. Tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. The only difference with mine is it's handmade, and I've got two hours in it, and it looks nice. It'll still mm-hmm. kill the same birds. You might be able to call in a bird with a fifteen dollar call that my fifty dollar mm-hmm. call won't call in. Birds are finicky; they like different sounds on different days. Mm-hmm. You might have one turkey call and three strikers, but the turkey will only gobble with one striker. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like the sound of the other two. So I mean, it's all, it's all um, a wash. You mm-hmm. don't need my turkey calls. Mm-hmm. I make I make my turkey calls for me. I have a collection. Uh, I the main main reason I got into turkey call making was I like beautiful wood. Mm-hmm. So that has been my my niche is getting all of these different beautiful woods from around the world and making turkey call from them 
And I've got a box right now in my room where I set one of each species. And eventually I've got, I've got some wood. I'm going to make like a, a shelf where I can mount it on the wall so I can have my collection there. I make turkey calls for myself. Mm-hmm. If I'm able to sell some, great. If I'm able to make a bit of, an extra, bit of extra money and my hobby at least pay for itself, great. But my main thing is making these beautiful things that people also like. That it sounds good enough to kill a turkey, but the person who buys it also likes looking at it. For since time immemorial, humans have liked small pretty things. <laughs> They're small pretty things, little pieces of art that also have a use. Mm-hmm. And some of the, the bigger industries, they'll have wooden turkey calls that try to claim they're the end-all, be-all of turkey calls. And, mm-hmm. They're nice, but they're not $100 nice. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're nice, but like a, the Woodhaven calls, they have cherry or walnut calls that are $100 or $90 compared to mine that are 50 Mm-hmm. Are theirs any better than mine? Well, theirs are CNC made, meaning they're made by a, contru- a computer controlled machine so they can have better quality control across a line. They know all of these calls will more or less sound the same. Whereas mm-hmm. with me, if I make 10 turkey calls, they all sound different. Mm-hmm. Some of them might not sound good, and I throw them in the burner. Because. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> And sometimes acoustics are fickle. Yeah. And I don't know what makes it sound good. I just know what a turkey call the inside of one looks like. I said, yep, that, that'll that sound like a turkey. Mm-hmm. And then when I glue it all together and I strike it, it'll either sound good or it'll sound bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I sent, I sent uh, two turkey calls to the NWTF Grand National Call Making Competition. In mm-hmm. Nashville. So every every year during their convention, they have a call makers competition. And I was so proud of these turkey calls. I thought they were going to do great. There were 71 entries. I placed 56th and 64th. Ouch. Jesus. Ouch. <laughs> and I looked at the scorecard, and there were five different categories that they were graded on. And seven judges, and they're all scored on one to 20. And the highest and the lowest judges are dropped, so you're left with the five middle scores. And I scored like 14s and 15s across the board, except for one judge who gave me 13s across the board. So they didn't they didn't grade badly. Mm-hmm. They just graded kind of average, maybe a bit above average. If 10 mm-hmm. is dead average, they, you know, they were all above average. They mm-hmm. just Everybody else who submitted the call did a lot better than me. Mm. But that That's was a funny. real that was a real punch to the gut. And then my girlfriend told me, Well, people love your work. You sell them all the time. It doesn't matter what these judges think. Yeah. I'm like, that's a good point. And they and uh and uh both of the calls were donated to the NWTF to be put up for auction, and they both sold mm-hmm. for ninety dollars. Which is oh. higher than they'd be if I sold them. They were both fifty dollar calls for me, maybe sixty mm-hmm. because I had some engraving work. But right, that's beside the point. So they both sold nicely. 
and they're both on my Instagram. So anybody listening can go look at them and hear how they sound. Cats being bad. They, anybody can go hear how they sound mm-hmm. and judge for themselves if they like how it sounded or not. I was happy. Mm-hmm. With that. And that's JSW underscore Woodworks for anyone who wants to look on Instagram, right? Yep. And I, I like to, if I'm ever, if I'm ever posting a call, I always want to do a sound file of a video of me using it mm-hmm. so that both the person who bought it knows what it's supposed to sound like if they're mm-hmm. inexperienced and they don't know how to make a pop call work they can look at my video and see okay that's the sound i'm going for that's what the guy who made it made it sound like mm-hmm. and also for anybody who wants to buy one of my pieces if i post one for sale they can see how it sounds so that they're not dropping 60 80 dollars on a piece that they don't know what it sounds like mm-hmm. Because that'd be a shot in the dark on their end. And it's just kind of my way to give some confidence in the money mm-hmm. that they're spending. And I'm That's also awesome. now doing call makers notes in the caption of what I think of the call, how it yeah. sounds, what are, what are, what's it good at, what, what sound doesn't really work for it, what situation would be good for, is it high pitched, is it low pitched, does it have a good purr? Those those are just small things that I think will help anybody who's interested in one of my pieces have some confidence with mm-hmm. what they're buying. But I, I like talking with um, other call makers and seeing their process because you know I'm talking to a dozen different call makers and we all have slightly different process processes for how we make our calls. Mm-hmm. I haven't met anyone that makes them the same way I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I've also given some very valuable information to people who have just started making turkey calls. Mm-hmm. I've given them, you know, what the inside is supposed to look like and how to get there to make a call like I do, how it mm-hmm. sounds like I do. So they don't have to spend a year trial and error, trial and erroring to get a call that works i can i can get their foot in the door so they know how to start you're giving away the colonel secret recipe oh yeah i mean it's (laughs) so there's a soundboard inside yeah it's under the striking surface Mm -hmm. and the biggest and the biggest factor in how a turkey call sounds is the distance from the top of the soundboard to the bottom of the striking surface Mm. and that tension is basically Two glass striking, two glass soundboards thick, so about a quarter of an inch. So what you do is you take two glass soundboards, you stick them together, and as you're turning the soundboard pedestal, you throw it in there and see how does it line up with the shelf that the striking surface sits on. When those two are flush, you're done. Mm -hmm. You you can start finishing it, and when you glue it up, it's probably going to be an okay sounding turkey call. Mm. yeah very interesting well i have to say i mean we definitely uh, we agree with with your stance on like i wouldn't call you an influencer at all and here's why i think there's a big difference or difference between an influencer and just like a small business influencers seek to change people's 
behavior perspective, I think, in some way to align with like the lens through which they're showing like a small view into their quote unquote life. I'm gonna call, I call it quote unquote life because it's not the real life, right? You know, it's it's a it's a movie essentially in pictures. Um, it's only the select parts, but their personalities and their personalities. They're selling, they're yeah. selling their personalities in whichever yeah. companies are sponsoring them. That's their personality. They're that trying they, to get you that they portray. Exactly. They're trying to get you to buy into an intangible brand that is them, essentially, and then leverage that buy-in to get you to buy actual products that will compensate them and create value in their personal brand. And someone like yourself is not doing anything close to that. You're making a product and saying, here's my product, like like it or not. You know, buy it and- if you want, but I, I've told people. You can buy a $15 call from Walmart and it will yeah. do the same thing. <laughs> no, somebody who wants your call wants a piece of artwork as well. They want like something that feels special to them. And and you deliver that by giving them individualized choices. Each call is made individually by you. So it's a unique product. I mean, these are all things that are bare. Like, you know, you can't get that just anywhere. You can't go to Walmart and buy like an individual piece of artwork in that respect like it's it's different yeah, yeah. so that, that's I, the we conclusion that's the conclusion that i eventually came to was that i'm more yeah. of a crafts crafts person making mm-hmm. a product and marketing yeah. it to the hunting industry yeah and we also this like this part we're still working out we don't tnk hunting another company we support that makes amazing like bino harnesses and um, like gators and all these like really high quality Cordura products. He has um, one of the turkey calls. TMK does. Yeah, I, I, I oh, followed that's cool. him. I followed him a while back, and uh, I sent him one just because I appreciated his no bullshit attitude. To mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I, I liked him. I like him. So that's awesome. That was also back when I was not very experienced, so I don't remember how good the turkey call was. It probably wasn't <laughs> very good, but. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, that's that's so funny that you guys have already connected. But yeah, but but he puts up grip and grins from customers as well. But he's not paying anybody to go out and get grip and grins, which I think is the big difference. There's very different motivations, and I think ethical issues that come about when you pay someone say, "Here's my product, go kill stuff with it, so I can advertise." Versus, "Hey, here's my product." It's. I think it's quality, and if you have a great experience with it and want to share that with us, like we'd love to show people that, like you know, about like about that. But the motivations there are very, very different. No one's going to buy your call and go out turkey hunting their butts off across twelve states to just to get featured on your page, you know, for free. Like, there's no, there's no ROI in that. Maybe if someone does shoot something and you do feature them, there's a little bit of like a dopamine ROI, you know, they get a little hit like, Oh, cool. Like, come on. I love this page. And they put me on, but that's largely harmless, I think. Um, But when you amplify that by adding economic values to it and people become, that becomes a career and people that aspire to like, Oh, well I hunt, but you know, I'm not a hunt. Like I don't get to hunt all day. It's not my job, but I want it to be. You know, or I want to have the same kind of success that someone who hunts that way has. How do I 
get to that while having a day job? The answer is you get a really nice lease or you pay an outfitter or whatever it is to have be really successful. But you create that framework. But JSW Woodworks is not creating that framework. No way. Neither is TNK, neither is Gulch Gear, neither is there's another call making company we've talked to. They're called Naughty Beaver Calls. They do um pot calls, read calls, some duck calls, they like a bunch of stuff. None of these, none of you guys are, you know, feeding that model. You're on the other side of the, of the Instagram world. That's mostly crickets and just a few people trickle through every now and then, but it's enough to, you know, run a side business with. Um, and everyone we've talked to aside from TNK and Gulch gear, well, Gulch gear is a unique situation. It's a Gulch is a camo company. He's a former um, animator who like quit and started his own camo company. Um, and it's awesome because it's not like, you know, you look at any other camo company and what do they, sh- they show the picture of like a bunch of dudes all wearing their stuff looking cool, you know, out on a hunt. He shares pictures of just like a guy wearing his camo in woods and he's like, can you see him? And in the, in a lot of his pictures, you can barely see the guy. It's actually like the camo looks really quality, um, but it's just a different, different take on the a whole industry. Um, but I think he's mostly full time. But that's only two full-time companies out of, we have a knife guy lined up now, a couple of traditional archery people we're going to talk to, some call makers like yourself. None of these people are doing it full-time. It's all on the side. Maybe it's 50%, like some guys are contractors 50% of the time and then make the bows the other 50% of the time. But, you know, and I think that's way more special too than just buying from Woodhaven or Primos or whoever that's, you know, just churning them out in a factory and they're not even looking at the costs. You know, with Woodhaven, I'm sure they have, when they, uh, they have the production that large, they have a much larger overhead than the small guys like myself. So maybe their finances do work out where they got this little turkey call for a hundred dollars to pay for their overhead and the marketing with the hunting public and, they got to pay oh, their they, guys yeah. a living wage because they can go down to Target and get a job for fifteen dollars an hour. So mm-hmm. they got to make sure they're paying. Hopefully, they're paying their guys a healthy sum. So maybe their maybe the maybe the hundred dollar price tag makes sense. Of course, mm-hmm. the market part for the hunting public. You know, but um, my my shop, quote unquote, is a plywood bench that I roll in and out of my father's garage nice uh, i recently graduated college in 2020 and got mm-hmm. a, got a real job now i live with my brother mm-hmm. but my dad's house is 15 minutes down the road and mm-hmm. i can't use my brother's garage because he uses it for his for all of his stuff mm-hmm. so, and my dad doesn't like me working in the garage because it creates a huge dusty mess especially with like sanding and stuff so it's a bench mm-hmm. that in and out of the garage so in the summer i'm working in 90 degree heat in the winter i'm bundled up with six layers sitting out mm-hmm. there with gloves on and a face shield trying to turn a turkey call rolling <laughs> me swaying me back and forth and yeah up this turkey call with a wrong knife move well that's funny wow hopefully yeah. one day i'll have a house and i'll be able to have a garage where i can just set all my stuff and that's where it lives yeah yeah definitely well i think i definitely think that's in the cards and i think uh hopefully some people pick up some of your product here i think that'd be pretty awesome um i mean 
JS, at JSW underscore woodworks on Instagram. The calls are beautiful. Um, you know, looks like quality stuff. And um, yeah, man, we're really excited to, you know, just feature you a little bit, let people listen to this conversation. We'll share a post later on. If you want to email me a picture or something that, of a, a call you particularly like or something um, when we share the episode, but um, yeah, man, this has been an awesome conversation. I feel like I've definitely learned a lot here and I'd love, I, I think we do need to do a better job of getting more Eastern perspective in a, on hunt quietly. Um, Cause that is such a large part of the hunting community in the United States. Um, so I really appreciate you be willing to come on here and sharing all your knowledge with us. And um, yeah, everybody make sure you check out JSW underscore woodworks on uh, Instagram. And that's, is that the best way for them to order a call from you too? Or is there a website they should go to? No, no website, no Facebook. It's pretty much just all Instagram. All Instagram. So slide in the DMs and, and get yourself a, a, a nice turkey call for the season. I don't have the time for a website. I've tried a couple of <laughs> times, but it just it, it never panned out. Squarespace. Use this promo code for Squarespace. <laughs> I've looked at uh, it probably three times and been like, eh, I don't have yeah. I have the time. <laughs> Instagram yeah. enough time as it is. So Instagram, I think, does the trick. I think you can make a, a, a business on work on Instagram for sure. I don't need any more. Instagram gives me enough business that I don't need other avenues. We'll put it that yep. Way. Don't need to be any busier than you already are. I get yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> awesome, Jacob. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's really, really nice to have you. And uh, hopefully we uh, we talk again. Hopefully uh, we get some turkey call business head your way. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you, man. Definitely. All right. You have a good one. Yes, sir. You too. Bye.